Hi, and welcome to the teachings of CoChurch. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus and help you to do the same. We are passionate about real community, so please reach out to us and connect by visiting our website www.co-church.org or joining us in person every Sunday as we gather. We hope this talk is helpful. Guys, um, how are you all? Are you all good? No, you can't really answer back. That's a weird question to answer. Hi, Nikki. New family in church. <laughs> Lovely to have you guys back. I feel like this morning I am going to continue or even try and land a conversation that I would have started like two preachers back. Uh, I'm often with the kiddies, and so whenever I'm in here, I, I try and remember back to what it was that we spoke about last time, which was a few weeks ago. And then the time before that, you may remember, for those of you that were here, I had shared like a series of dreams, which essentially ended in us... Um, coming to the conclusion that perhaps revival was actually on the horizon. Was anyone here when I shared that? Anyone here? Okay, awesome. And so the thing was, the next time I ended up preaching, I was like, oh my goodness, okay, to be able to maybe usher in revival, perhaps we need to start the conversation of like end times. And I know as soon as we start that conversation, it becomes like, oh my goodness, that is a beast you are opening. Excuse the pun. But I, um, this is what we did the last time we all got together. And I, I feel like I was explaining, who was here for that? Yeah? <laughs> you, all, you all came back. It's amazing. Um, some people didn't. <laughs> we talked about end times. We talked about actually it being a chunk of time in the same way that you get like the the Reformation is a chunk of time. And I went there with explaining how um, from Adam to Abraham, there had been like 2,000 years. And then from Abraham to Jesus was actually a period of 2,000 years. That time from Abraham um, or Adam to Abraham was a time where it was just God and man. And then there was a new time where it was God and Israel. And now we're living in the time where it's God and his church. And we are living in super interesting times. We can sometimes get mathematical with the word of God, but at the same time, when it comes to this, um, I don't know that we can be too calculated and mathematical. Because at the end of the day, uh, when it talks about this time period that we're living in, the time of Jesus and his church, we are told in the word, Jesus says it to us quite plainly, that we actually don't know the day or the hour when he is going to return. But I think for our theology as the church, it is super important that we have to decide whether we believe he is coming back or not. I have decided that I believe he is coming back. My reason being that there's like 800 prophetic words over over the birth of Jesus in the Bible. It's quite a lot. And he did come. He did come as a baby. And some people missed it and some people got it. You know, there's like 2,500 words in the Bible about him returning. It's a lot. I kind of wonder whether um, maybe, I don't know, God is very clever because he knew that maybe as a people we were going to become less and less and less spiritual, you know? Back in the days, people were way more spiritual than than we are these days. Everything was spiritual, you know? Um, and we've kind of become a little bit more, I don't know, 
um, you know, whatever, does it make sense, scientific, all of the things. And so maybe he just needed to add a few more prophecies in there for us to be able to like reconcile that. But I have decided that he is coming back. The order of events as to how and what that is actually going to look like is, is interesting. It's a very interesting um, conversation to have. And a lot of people go to the book of Revelation to try and decode what that's going to look like. But the reality is the book of Revelation doesn't actually give you all of the answers to all of the questions that we might have. And there is a lot of misunderstanding even about the book of Revelation. It's actually, a lot of people call it revelations. I would just like to say, please, in this church, may we never call it the book of revelations. It's actually the revelation. It's singular. John has this moment, and he has what's actually known as an apocalypse. Now, again, oh my gosh, big word. And we have come to understand the apocalypse apocalypse as Hollywood has maybe dictated to us. Hollywood do a great job of taking things that were meant to mean this and turning it into something else. I mean, they've done that with like love and marriage, haven't they? And we watch movies and suddenly we're like, oh, wow, that's what love is and it's not. And they've kind of done that with the apocalypse as well, actually, because the word apocalypse is actually throughout the Bible. It's crazy. Like it it talks about when, um, you know, the apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, as he was walking down the road and heading towards Damascus, and essentially his mission was to kill Christians, he actually has this moment where he is blinded by a light and has this revelation that the very people he's on a mission to kill are actually bearers of the truth. Jesus actually is and was who he said he was. And in that moment, the word that's actually used there is that he has an apocalypse. Because the word apocalypse is more... It's an epiphany or an unveiling. There's this um, scripture, I think it's Jacob, who's like a little drunk the one night. Is it Jacob? Correct me if I'm not remembering right. And actually he like goes into his tent and like he is, he's not wearing any clothes. Does anyone know the scripture? The Bible's awesome, guys. Seriously. Like, and it says that that moment was like an apocalypse. It was an unveiling of things that were once hidden and were now seen. Literally, that's the word that's used. And it's so crazy because we've now come to understand it as destruction and this violent thing and this like, And actually, we've kind of missed the point. So Daniel has an apocalypse when he sees things. It's this unveiling. So perhaps it is a vision that people will have or a dream that people will have to understand what once was not seen and is now seen. Does that make sense? So the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. The whole book is an apocalypse. John like dreams this crazy stuff and he writes it down afterwards and he writes it down as a letter to seven churches. Same as Paul wrote wrote down letters in the New Testament to very specific churches. This is a letter and it went off to seven different churches. And it's amazing because when you open the book of Revelation, they almost anticipate that this is going to be a difficult book to understand. But blessed are you if you grasp it. It doesn't say that in any other book. So some of us, we just stay away from it because we're just a bit freaked out by it. And if we suddenly just become okay with the fact that this is dream talk and there is some crazy stuff in there. Like honestly, the amount of times I've had people message me when they get to Revelation 12, what 
is going on? There's a woman, she's pregnant, she has this baby, the dragon eats the baby, then there's like seven horns on the beast, and I'm all, oh my goodness, but I can't, let me help you. (laughs) It's like, what is going on? Like he's having an apocalypse and he's seeing these things. But the thing to know is that you cannot read the book of Revelation if you don't know your whole Bible. Because basically, he is having a revelation, an apocalypse, about the entire story of the world. And we, who maybe don't read our Bibles... We try and work it out, and then we're like, we don't understand it. It's a code that no one can crack, you know? And it's, it's actually not. <laughs> it's actually not. It's actually, you know, that woman who had the baby is actually Israel, and the baby is actually Jesus, and then it talks about how the baby is taken up. And it's like, but it's, it's a dream. And so you have to try and, like, get your head around, and there's some things that are very hard to get your head around. And so a lot of people are trying to look at Revelation, and they're trying to work it out, these events happening, these events oh my goodness, okay, how we're tracking in the end of the world and whatever else. And yes, there are places that you can look at and you can see, okay, wow, all right, that was prophesied and that is actually going down. But the reality is it was a book or a letter that was written to seven specific first century churches and it was as relevant to them as it is to us today. It is a book for the end times. This time period applies to our century, that century, all the centuries in between, because it really gives like a code or pattern as to how humanity is, how superpowers will rise and control, how subtleties will creep in, how we are all having to deal with this stuff. But actually, it does it does talk about it ramping up, and there is a time where it is the final pattern will take place, and then, oh my goodness, not apocalypse, like bam, something's about to happen, but actually Jesus will return. He will return, and who is he returning for? He is returning for his bride. Who is his bride? It is his church. And as I say that, there is the most beautiful, probably a lot clearer and more helpful for us to see, beautiful metaphor that runs through throughout the entire New Testament of Jesus being this bridegroom, us being the bride, and the pattern of a Hebrew wedding is just sewn in, threaded in throughout the New Testament to actually help us, show us, navigate what this whole end time time is going to look like and how we should be in this time, okay, waiting for the return of Jesus. The early century church were waiting for him and at feels like it's a heightened conversation in the church globally at the moment. And the reason it feels like it is, kind of started with started with what I highlighted last time, the whole 2,000 years, 2,000 years in the Old Testament and the fact that we are now nearing 2,000 years to when Jesus would have died. Jesus was 33 when he died. Our um, zero in our calendars of BC and AD is actually inaccurate. For any historians there, you would, you would, you would know this. Um, and no one actually knows exactly when Jesus was born, but they've pinned it down to two possible dates. It was either 4 BC or 6 BC. 
So if it was 6 BC, it takes us to the year 2025, that he would have been, that it would be 2,000 years of him being 33 years old and then, and then dying on the cross and rising again and then birthing the church. If it was... Did I get that math right? Yeah, six, minus six BC, six BC. If it was four BC, it takes us to 2029, okay, that he would have been 33 years old and he would have died on the cross, risen again. So I kind of wonder, when I, I introduced you to Steve Penny last time, did anybody go home and listen to his series? Did you? He is amazing. He is amazing. He's a good man. Listen, guys, I'm going to highly recommend that series to you. Um, it is very well, well, um, yeah, little half hour, six, six half hour messages. Very, very helpful what he delivers in that time. Again, maybe I found it more helpful because we actually do know him and, and have a track record of um, him prophesying and being like, whoa, crazy accurate. Anyway, those of you, I think some people who aren't here today had actually watched it and had messaged me and it's like, okay, whoa, how about Steve Penny talking about Jesus returning before um, 2030? Because that's a big call. He's not giving a day or giving a time. I would say he is a prophet. I would also say that he's looking at the whole 2,000 years thing and he's saying, and he's looking at the whole Hebrew wedding thing and probably getting to a place where he's like, I really feel like the return is imminent, okay? But he's just sharing. He's not declaring. There's a bit of a difference, okay? And that's a good thing. He, um, let's leave Steve Penny, actually. Let's leave him. You go and you can watch. We'll introduce, I introduced you to Beth Moore as well. She's somebody so lovely to tap into as well in terms of her being a teacher, different to Steve, where he's this prophet and Beth's this teacher. And she has a phenomenal way of teaching the book of Revelation and showing all these different angles, but also showing how some things that we can argue over are actually, it's like, listen, it doesn't matter if it went this way or went this way. It actually doesn't matter to how we are supposed to be living our lives. And so what we've got to like come to in this is what do we know? And whether it's this way or that way, it doesn't matter. We should be living our lives ready. That is what we are called to in the scriptures. So no one's trying to prophesy a date or a time or try and freak anybody out by saying the return of Jesus is going to happen before 2030, although that is quite freaky. Um, we're just, uh, the whole point is that we are supposed to be, as the end time church, living in a space where we are ready, ready and waiting. There's that parable of the 10 virgins. Do you know it? Jesus shares it. And um, oh, it's, a, it's a big one because he basically talks about his second coming in that parable where he says there are going to be these 10 virgins or 10 brides. Who are the brides? his church. And five of them were wise. Five of them were not wise. Do you know this? Are you familiar with this? It's in Matthew, and I'm totally all over my notes, but it's fine. I'll paraphrase this for you guys, and then we're going to look at the Hebrew wedding, and then um, we're all going to feel great about ourselves. And <laughs> so, so the parable is, there are these 10 virgins, five are wise, five are not wise. They are waiting for their bridegroom, okay? Are you getting the parallel? Just one of the many that happen in the New Testament. Okay, they're waiting. The reason that they have these oil lamps is because in a 
In a Hebrew culture, traditional Hebrew culture, there are actually three parts to the whole betrothal process. In my own paraphrase of it, there is the promise, and then there is this preparation part, and then there is the party, and it happens over a period of time. We are used to, in our culture, and again, depends on which culture you're talking about, but in my culture, we'd be used to getting engaged and having a bit of a wait and preparation time for the wedding and then having a wedding. Okay, not too dissimilar in the Hebrew culture, but um, I might have to leave those 10 virgins for a minute and share a bit about that and then I'll get back to them. So hang on there. The the, the whole promise part of it is basically when a man in, in a Hebrew village is ready to take a wife, his household might approach the household of the prospective bride that has been chosen. Okay, and they will come in and what they will do is they will basically um, put on offer all of the qualities that the groom has to offer this prospective bride. Okay? They will bear out like this is this is this is him. This is who he is. They will also decide on a bride price. It's not like, uh, you know, when I tell my daughter this kind of stuff, she gets very rah-rah. So they bought them, they bought the woman. I'm all, calm down, all-girls school chick. You, are. <laughs> It wasn't really like that, okay? Because actually the beauty of a Hebrew wedding is, unlike those that are like arranged marriages, the bride got to hear everything that was on offer, okay, from the groom. She got to be part of the process of agreeing on a price, and it would be, like, what can the family, actually afford and and whatever else, but there was a price, there was a cost to taking a wife, and then she got to give her consent or not. She could say no, or she or she could say, yes, I consent to all of this. And then it was kind of beautiful. They would go into this um, chupa, if you read it, you want to say hoopa, but then you sound very Australian, hoopa, but it's a chupa apparently, and it's this like canopy. That, that, that would be held by other people, and the couple that were now about to get engaged would go and stand under this canopy, okay? And there was a promise that was made to each other, and guess what happened? Guess how the promise was sealed? They would drink a cup of wine. They would share a cup of wine, Gifts were given, a price was set, and it was known. And um, and then after that moment, they would be officially, by law, we would say engaged, but in that culture, it was a whole lot more binding than in ours. Because as, as soon as that happened, it was like, you are as good as married. And we, in an engagement period, if we're going to call off the wedding, there's not much we have to do other than perhaps give the ring back, you know, to the guy and, you know, call the photographer and whatever else, but you don't have to like go through and get legally divorced. They would actually have to go through a divorce after this whole process under the chupa, okay, because it was a legally binding contract. You will remember when um, Mary fell pregnant by the Holy Spirit, she was engaged to Joseph. They had gone through this whole, this is what I'm offering, this is the promise that we have, they had drunk the wine, and what had actually been established was a ketubah, it's it's the Hebrew word, which was a contract between the two of them. And so when she goes and gets pregnant, Mary gets pregnant, and he doesn't know that it's by the Holy Spirit. You can understand why he's all, um, 
I'm not too sure about marrying her all the way to the end. And he was super kind in that he was going to try and silently and quietly divorce her because he didn't want to shame her. Other people might have wanted to shame her. And then, of course, Gabriel visits him and tells him, listen, you need to... Fin- you need to carry through on this wedding because she has actually been incredible in that, like, so brave to say yes right in the middle of this process. And he has a revelation, he has an apocalypse, and um, and, and the wedding goes through, okay? But so there's this promise, there's this um, preparation time now, okay? Once they are engaged, actually, just hang on a second, because I might just show you a few scriptures, because it's beautiful to see how this whole Hebrew thing actually links back to us, the church. Because really, what has happened with God the Father and his son Jesus is that Jesus actually left heaven, left his home, came to earth, Put his qualities on display. This is who I am. This is what I have to offer you. These are the truths. But actually, we the people who get to learn about Jesus in whichever way that he will reveal himself, mostly it's going to be through his church because that's the plan. That's the time we're living in. It's the people that have to consent and say, yes, I choose you. I have heard what you are, who you are, and I now choose to become the bride to you. It's beautiful. There was one of three ways that, that, that um, Hebrew couples would get engaged. One was literally that way, that actually the son would leave home with a dowry, and he would go and he would purchase his price. Listen, Jesus purchased us with his life. Like he, this, that was his. That was a massive cost. So that dowry has been paid. Who he is is on offer. Whether we become the bride or not is up to us. We have to now give consent and enter into a contract, which we would call the new covenant or a new testament. This is why you get an old testament and a new testament. We have this new contract. It's not replacing the old. Sometimes I hear people talking about how the church has replaced Israel. It actually hasn't. This is a whole new covenant or new testament. It's why I am fascinated with watching Israel, because that covenant still stands. I've always said to Bev, if we were to ever go into business, I want a Jewish business partner, because those guys are blessed, because it's in the it's in their covenant. You know, has anyone noticed that? Anyone noticed that? I've actually got a Jewish friend who's just moved into the era. I'm all, mm. I. I want your blessing. So (laughs) it's a different covenant. We are living in a new covenant, okay? And listen, guys, how beautiful is this? Cans, won't you put on the screen um, 1 Corinthians 11? 1 Corinthians 11. You got that? Oh, you do. And it says this, I have handed down to you, okay, what came to me by direct revelation from the Lord himself. The same night in which he was handed over, he took bread and gave thanks. Okay, this is speaking about what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then he distributed it to the disciples and said, take it and eat your fill. It is my body, which is given for you. Listen, guys, listen. Do this to remember me. He did the same with the cup of wine after supper and said, this cup in the same way that they drink wine under the hoopah, 
this cup that I'm now drinking with you seals the new covenant with my blood. Drink it. And whenever you drink this, do it to remember me. There is so much like parallel between a Hebrew wedding and Jesus and his, and, and his church. It's woven everywhere. In Matthew 26, 29, it's so interesting because um, you actually see here where Jesus, is, Jesus himself is talking about communion. And he says, and he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Are you there, Cairns? Matthew 26, 29. Amazing. Okay. Um, I'm reading a little bit before, but you'll, you'll catch up on that verse. Okay. He says, and he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink it or drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And listen to what he says here, guys. Mark my words. Okay. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, we can read over that and be like, cool, what a, cool he gave up drinking. But actually, it's so much more than that. Because in a Hebrew wedding, they would have this cup of wine to seal their ketubah, their new covenant, and then the groom would not drink wine again until he returned for his bride, and they had their marriage supper. So the fact that Jesus would throw it in there and go, I will not drink wine again, he is just paralleling a Hebrew wedding the whole time. It's crazy. Okay, and then, guys, they get engaged. And usually there was a 12-month period that would that would happen between this engagement ceremony under the chuppah and then the actual final wedding ceremony, the marriage supper under that same chuppah. Okay, 12 months, and the reason they needed that time is now the groom would leave his bride, okay, who he is legally married to, but they don't actually move in together and do anything in bed together. They live in separate homes. He then goes to prepare a room for his bride. It tended to be an extended of his father's house. So he'd have about 12 months to get ready. And in the meantime, the bride would be getting herself ready. And she would be going through, an, a, basically, I want to be a Hebrew bride. It's like she just lived in a spa for a whole year. It's amazing. She went through all of these processes of just cleansing herself and becoming more and more beautiful. And she would get rid of things that she didn't need anymore from like a childhood life that she would now be moving. She, she basically just, you know, had a great detox. Apparently you're doing that these days, Jade. You go into people's garages and help them just like get rid of stuff. So... Hebrew. She basically, <laughs> I know things. She, <laughs> she just went through this process of getting rid, getting rid, shedding whatever she didn't need. So she came into when she was, she'd be ready then, whenever that groom came back for her. And one of the things she would have to do is she would have to keep her oil lamps burning every night because the groom, although she could expect it to be around 12 months that he was coming back from her, he could arrive earlier and he could arrive later. No one knew the day or the hour that he would return, only the father of the groom, who one day would say to his son, you are ready. The home is ready. Go and get your bride. And the 
the, the groomsmen and the best men and everything, they would get these like shofars, it's like vuvuzelas and Hebrew like ram's horn things, and they would make a big noise, and it usually would be at night that they would come to collect the bride. Isn't it so weird that you wouldn't even know like when your wedding day was actually going to be? So you just had to be ready. As the Bible tells us in Matthew that he's going to come back like a thief in the night. We in South Africa know about thieves in the night. We have to make sure that we are like locking our doors and getting everything ready every night because you do not know when that thief is coming. And this is how Jesus, God the Father, is instructing us as his end time church to live. Sure, we might have an idea, but he could come early, he could come later. So you just have to be ready and you've got to keep your oil lamps burning because it tended to be at night. And so when he entered the village, he needed to know which house was his bride in so that he didn't take somebody else because they actually wore veils as well and then he could marry the wrong person. So that wouldn't be good. And it actually did happen in scripture the one time where the father tricked the guy. Do you remember this story? Do you know this story about Leah and Rachel? And the father was like, no one's going to marry Leah. And it actually says that she was pretty much says she, she was ugly. The Bible, I tell you. And it was like no one was offering to marry this, this woman. And obviously the dad didn't want to like be left with her. And so he literally tricks his future son-in-law and sends Leah in to marry, <laughs> to marry the man who had been working so hard to pay off the dowry for Leah's sister, Rachel. You know that story. It's a story for another day. But it could happen because of the veiling. And so it was important to have your lamps burning and be ready so that you are the bride who gets taken. Okay? But what have I told you? Oh, I didn't tell you about the mikvah. So the mikvah is this moment within the engagement time, actually. I forgot about that, but it's so, it's so interesting because the mikvah was basically a ceremonial bath, a cleansing, a baptism, if you like. And so when the engagement happened, the groom, he would go off with his buddies and he would be immersed in water. And then that was his, that was his moment. So would the bride. She would go and she would also go through a mikvah. But it's very interesting because she would then continue to go through mikvah, okay, which is basically just immersion, dipping. And so it's so beautiful <laughs> that Jesus got baptized. Like he didn't have any sin in him. He didn't need to wash anything off, but he was baptized. John the Baptist baptizes him. He has his immersion, okay? He's done his part. We, the bride, are called to be baptized both in water. Yes, Nikki wants to be baptized next week. If anybody else wants to be baptized, you're welcome to join Nikki because we're going to have to, you know, get a little setup going there for you. Um, so you get baptized as the bride in water, but then we are also called to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a difference between the two baptisms. One is a one-off act in water. The other one is we are supposed to live in the presence of the Holy Spirit, immerse ourselves in the person of the Holy Spirit so that he could change us from the inside out. And so this is why the bride then goes and almost lives in a spa for a whole 12 months. She is just beautifying herself, getting rid of sin in her life, sanctifying herself, if you like, to be ready for that time when the groom comes back. I tell you what, the church is going through or has been going through an, a series of beautifying um, processes from 
then until the time that we're living in now. And God is coming back for a ready and beautiful people. And the thing that scares me, guys, and listen, the thing that scares me is, it doesn't scare me, but it, it, it burdens me, maybe, as a pastor, is the parable of the ten virgins. Because all of them were brides, and all of them were waiting for Jesus' return, and only five of them went with him when he came back. Only five of them were ready. Guys, that is like 50% of the church today that perhaps are not, not ready for when Jesus comes back, for his church. Because this, that story, or that parable that Jesus tells, is he says... Keep your oil lamps burning. Go home and read it in Matthew. Cans, I gave it to you, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, but for you guys to go home and read it, it's in Matthew 25. Okay? But he's basically saying at the start of it, um, when my coming draws near, heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to ten maidens or virgins or brides who took their oil lamps and went outside to meet the bridegroom and his bride. Five of them were foolish and ill-prepared, for they took no extra oil for their lamps, and five of them were wise, for they took flasks of oil with their lamps. In other words, what happened was it took a little longer than people, I don't know, took a little longer than maybe the brides thought. And some of those brides who were waiting just ran out of oil. They ran out of oomph. <laughs> they ran out of fire. They ran out of the Holy Spirit like living with a sense of urgency in their life. They just ran out. They ran to flat. And they actually asked to borrow oil from the five who had stores. They had extra. They had a surplus in their life. And these five, I used to sometimes think, why were they so stingy? Why wouldn't they just share with these guys? Like, they asked for oil because basically all 10 of them start to hear the sound of the bridal party coming and they realize, oh my goodness, the groom is coming. We are not ready for him. Our lights have gone out. And so they're like, can we borrow from you? And these guys are like, we can't lend you. And I look at it, and again, I'm, at first it was like, how unkind. They should have just lent. But here's the thing, guys. You cannot lend your oil because it's yours. It's the oil that you've crushed into your life. It is your firsthand revelation of who Jesus is. It is your relationship with him. You can't take that and just share it with somebody else. If they have not crushed their own oil and walked their own path and carved out their own revelation and relationship with Jesus, it, it's a mismatch. It's like you can't share blood with the wrong blood type. You just can't. And here we have like Five of these women who are ready and, Jesus, and, and the bridegroom comes and they go into the marriage supper of, supper of the Lamb. And the other five are not ready. And we're not talking about people who are not in church here, guys. They were all brides waiting. I'm talking about 50% of the church. And I'm telling you what, it burdens me so much that there will be people one day when Jesus comes back and 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 there won't be a readiness. And we're, we're called to just live ready. Here's, um, what do I want to read to you before we close? It's a big topic, hey? I want to read Matthew 24, 36 to 42 to you. You got that one, Cairns? Thank you. It says this. 
However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, talking about Jesus' return. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows in the same way that only a natural Hebrew father knows when he's going to say to his son, off you go, go get your bride. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Listen to the times. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. The world is going to be carrying on as normal. (laughs) People didn't realise what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all the way. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. And that is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Bevan and I joke all the time about who's getting taken and who's being left. I'm all sorry, buddy. I'm gone. (laughs) Pastor jokes. So, So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what the day of the Lord's coming is. It's quite forlorn, hey? Listen to how he's going to appear. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. We who are alive in him and remain until the Lord appears. This is Paul speaking, by the way. He's talking about, okay, we who are still alive, okay, and are still here when he actually comes back, because they were all living ready in their time, will by no means have an advantage over those who have already died. Okay, this is a whole other topic for another day, but basically it talks about how even dead people are going to rise again. Okay, we'll talk about the science of that another day. For both will actually rise together, for the Lord himself will appear, this is how he's coming back, with the declaration of victory. Talk about those shofars blowing when the when the groom would come back for his bride, the shout of an archangel, just the same as a Hebrew wedding, and the trumpet blast of God. He's going to come with an entourage to come and fetch his bride. He will descend from the heavenly realm and command those who are dead in Christ to rise. And then we who are alive will join them, transported together in the clouds to have an encounter with the Lord in the air. And we will forever be joined with the Lord. So encourage one another with these truths, it says in 1 Thessalonians. Now you start thinking about the science of that. You start thinking about, okay, that, that's the word rapture suddenly coming in. And it's interesting when you speak to people because they're like, oh, the word rapture is actually, that English word is actually not in our Bibles. It's not. The word rapture is actually not in our Bibles. But here, the last stage of a Hebrew wedding is called the Nisuin. That's the actual marriage, okay? The groom has come back. He's gotten his bride, okay? And nisuin means to take. And it's a word that comes from naso, which means to lift up. And there's a part in a Hebrew wedding where actually the couple get lifted up. Have you ever seen that? They get lifted up and they meet each other in the air. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And they have this whole ceremony and whatever else. And actually, if you go into the Hebrew Bible, you'll find the word hapatso, which means caught up or rapture. And if you go into the Latin Bible, you'll find the word rapimir, which means rapture. So we in our English Bibles have used the word caught up in the air, and people have simplified it to this one word rapture. So if, you, if you're ever in a conversation with anyone, just you know, let them know it is there. 
It's just in other languages. Let me just finish with this article. It's, it's a Hebrew guy who wrote this, and it's about that final ceremony, okay? It says this. At this time, the groom, with much noise, fanfare, and romance, carried the bride home. Once again, the bride and groom would enter the chuppah. They would recite a blessing over the wine, which was a symbol of joy, and they would finalize their vows. This is the first time they're drinking again. Um, Jewish Orthodox marriage. In a Jewish Orthodox marriage, it is traditional in some communities, this is interesting, for the bride to circle the groom seven times and then stand to the groom's right side under the chuppah. Since seven is the number of completion and perfection, this act symbolizes the wholeness and completeness that they cannot attain separately. And then basically, it's, it's, it's a little weird, guys. I don't know. They go, and, they go off from the wedding party and they actually consummate their marriage at that point and then they come out and everyone cheers. I don't know how I'd feel about that. And, um, and then, they, then they're married, fully partaking in the duties and privileges and the, and the covenant of the marriage. Here's, here's how I want to end. Giving, uh, there's also then a party, a party that happens with a whole lot of food and music and dancing and celebration. And that party, guys, goes on for seven days. That's a great party to be part of, hey? Seven days. Interesting. The seven's interesting. And um, I'll just drop a bomb and then leave you to take that home and, and unpack. But um, <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. We're not given enough information as to, okay, fine. We're given a heap about Jesus coming back for his bride. But then there's a whole lot of stuff that's thrown in there with seven years of tribulation, okay? The bride being taken, there's an not an argument, but a, a theological debate that goes down about whether those seven years of tribulation are before. Tribulation is pretty tough times, or are they after the rapture? I, I have come to settle on, and this is after listening to I don't know how many theological debates on this, and I really respect anybody else who settles somewhere else. But given the marriage ceremony and how they get married and then there's the circling of the seven times and then they feast for seven days, I have come to settle on. It goes rapture and then the Christians have left planet Earth and it, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be around for the next seven years because it, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. Tribulation will not be easy. But it does say that people will get saved in the tribulation but it will be hard. I mean, like, guys, we don't even know. We get saved. We raise our hand. Yes, Jesus, we accept you. I consent. And we just get saved in our hearts. There are people who had to say yes to Jesus and lose their life for saying yes to Jesus. I think people who get saved in that time, um, all I'm saying is, as for me and my family, we are being raptured because I do not want to be around. That is, that is what I've, I have come to 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 read, okay? Again, I would love a theological debate with anybody else who's, who's read stuff because it's interesting. And then it talks about um, an a thousand year period where there's this ruling and reigning on the earth where basically heaven and earth come together and the bride of Christ rules and reigns with him. So I've come to believe in 6,000 years, church, 50% of the church, um, basically seven tough years where some people will be saved and then a time of ruling and reigning. And, and, and I don't um, 
you can't get crazy literal about it. There's some stuff that is so figurative and symbolic and whatever else, and that's why I'm saying it's a very interesting theological debate. And actually, it shouldn't make a difference, whether it's this way or this way, as to how we, the church, are living, because at the end of the day, it is so clear that we should just be living ready and waiting. But I guess after all of the of the study, I have this, this deep, like, um, deep groaning prayer going on for all the people I love and for the church of Jesus Christ that, that she would be ready and that nobody that I loved would be left behind in that moment. It doesn't mean that there's an eternity of left behind. It just means, man, you could have you could have had it. You could have had it easier. <laughs> you could have had it easier. And I'm grateful for people who are bold enough to speak, because I do wonder whether some people will have to just tap into teaching on this end of things, and that's how they'll get saved. Because there's nobody else around to actually teach at that point. Um, and it's crazy stuff. But guys, we're living in a time of history time period in the world where a lot of that kind of stuff is crazy. But I mean, how crazy is it that God would come as a baby that would literally be birthed from a woman and come in and live and dwell amongst us? That's crazy. How crazy is it that there was a flood? Like That is crazy. How crazy is it that there was a tower of Babel, you know, and all the people spoke one language at that point, and then that was destroyed, and then we get languages. The story of the world is crazy. And we get super comfortable in whatever time we're living in. And God is like, okay, but this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And some of us, I don't know, lean in and, and some of us don't. And then we never really know until it happens, I guess. And hindsight is awesome. But I'm praying for, I'm praying for not hindsight, but for a readiness rather. Um, in Jesus' name. There's the bomb. Should we stand up and pray? <laughs> There's probably more we could talk about. Maybe we will in another time. It's a beautiful scripture in Revelation 21 that talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And oh my goodness, it's, um, it's beautiful. Hebrew wedding is beautiful. Um, and, and I think the grace of God is beautiful, of the Father God, that he has always wanted relationship with his creation and that he's tried this way and then through Israel and then through his church and then, and then oh my gosh, through hardship to get people and then coming and ruling and reigning and, and demonstrating then that the plan could always have worked. It could always have worked if we would have just aligned ourselves all along, if heaven and earth could have lived together and in that space. The plan on planet Earth could have worked. Anyway, go home and um, enjoy the book of Revelation. Be blessed by the seven horns. And I thank you, Father, for this morning and for your word that goes forth and how sharp it is. Like your word actually says it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts between bone and marrow. That is what your word does because that's what truth does. It just cuts right into who we are and how we're living and it, it divides in, in a healthy and good way. Um, and so I just pray that the word has done that this morning, Father, as only your word can do. Would you take it and, um, and just meditate with people over it as we go from this place? We thank you for this church. We thank you for what you are doing. And we, we ask, Father, that you would continue to be ahead of this church, <laughs> ahead of this church and taking us on the journey that we need to go on. And we pray for a readiness, not just in our church, but in the church. 
We pray for revival, like just for a fresh awakening to what your word truly says, that it wouldn't be a watered-down church, believing a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this, but that we would be a, a church ready and waiting in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions about today's teaching or anything else, please email us on hello at co-church.org or visit us on our website on www.co-church.org. We gather in person every Sunday here in Umshali on the north coast of KwaZulu-Natal and you are so welcome to join us.